from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today is Sean Carberry. He is an accomplished international correspondent now back here in Washington and the author of a new book titled Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. Sean, welcome to Update One. Thanks for having me, Adam. Before we talk about the book and what drove you to write it, let's begin with you. You had a broad liberal arts background in college at Lehigh and and didn't jump straight into journalism, right? No, no. Journalism really wasn't on my radar um, through you know much of my early life up until uh, really around I was I, I think it was around thirty when uh, it it became a thing. But yeah, I was I was music focused and spent much of my twenties in the Boston music scene, mostly as a recording engineer and producer, uh, occasional guitar player. I you know filled in here or there with people like Robin Lane or uh, Barron Whitfield and the Savages and you know some other great. Boston artists. But um, I was, after about seven, eight years, I was kind of hitting a ceiling in, in that business and looking at, okay, where do I take my audio production skills into something where I can have a little bit more stable of a career? And uh, I saw the uh, NPR station in Boston, WBUR, was looking for a production engineer. And so I reached out to them. They had me initially come in and freelance so I could learn the particulars of radio production engineering and then got hired into a full time position as a technical director and producer on one of the NPR national talk shows uh, produced in Boston. And so you know, I went from audio production to radio production. And then once I was in the radio world, really became focused on the content and, you know, all the, the policy parts of my brain kind of reignited after a little bit of dormancy in the music world. And, uh, you know, I wanted to focus on, um, you know, talking about substantive issues and tough policy challenges. And then, you know, early in that run, 9-11 happened, and that was kind of the, the first seed planted in my, you know, path to to doing overseas uh, international conflict journalism. Before we talk about 9-11 and what drew you to Afghanistan, um, what did those earlier days in audio engineering, but also I believe you sort of had your dallies in, in banking and teaching <laughs> and politics, what did those imbue in you? Well, you know, I growing up, I had a hard time finding sort of one thing that really, you know, captivated me that I wanted to put all of my energy in, into that one thing. And I was just always kind of curious. And so, you know, I started college as a mechanical engineering major because I was interested in getting into automotive design because I also grew up as a, a car kid and was around racetracks and friends who raced and things like that. So... After a year of mechanical engineering classes, uh, I looked at the course catalog and it basically said, you're taking this, 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 and this. And every other semester, we let you choose one class. And I just look and said, you know, there's too much I'm interested in. And so I went the exact opposite direction, got out of that and went into the widest possible major I could in urban studies. It allowed me to take courses in government, politics, 
literature, architecture, um, economics. And so really, you know, got kind of a, a sampling of everything and then sort of fell into the mortgage banking job after college because it was, you know, it was a family business. The opportunity was there and I had the skill set to, to walk in and, and do that work. But then, you know, after a couple of years, I was like, wait a second, this music thing. So, you know, quit and did that. And then, yeah, as you noted, I segued in music. I did teach at Berkeley College of Music for a little while. So got, you know, experience teaching. And I'll tell you, one of the first takeaways from that was the experience of being in front of a room and having to sort of drive the show. And I notice I stand up and I talk a little bit and I stop talking and there's silence. Right. And I'm like, oh, um, right. This is this is on me. All these people are looking at me and depending on me to to impart knowledge. And so that, I think, developed some of kind of the, you know, the skill set, the presentation, the storytelling things that kind of translate into to journalism um, and just sort of the, the comfort factor of being in front of an audience. Um, so, you know, various things along the way. But, you know, having financial backgrounds, so when I was running a bureau, I could actually handle the budget and reduce expenses, which was kind of unusual for, for a journalist to do. Um, you know, again, having all these different pieces has allowed me to kind of pivot toward opportunities and, uh, you know, indulge curiosity. You mentioned the attacks of 9-11, and obviously that drew your attention and, and the world to, to Afghanistan. Before we get into the details of you going overseas, how do you characterize it? Was it wanderlust? Was it FOMO? Was it the ultimate adrenaline rush? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, really was aspects of, of all that. I think what was happening in the, the days, early days when the invasion of Afghanistan happened is that at the start of the the broadcast of the program, The Connection, uh, we would try to get someone on from Afghanistan to give us a debrief. And so a lot of mornings I'd come into the control room and dial up a satellite phone number, hoping that, you know, Anthony Shadid or Sarah Chase or, you know, one of the Karzai's or various people that we had contacts for would answer and get them on the phone at the top to describe what was happening. So for me, sitting in the control room in this air conditioned box, hearing these people out there describing what was going on, that awoke something. And I felt a need to see it for myself. I mean, it was it was a mix of, yes, you know, personal desire to to see and experience something so so alien sounding in many ways, but so important, but also a feeling as a journalist that this is the biggest moment of a generation for the news industry. And I want to do everything I can to tell the story, to be a part of it. And even though I knew what I was doing was a huge part of it by making a show every day uh, that was informing people, I just, I felt the need to kind of get out there. And I was like, I, I have to do that. Following a master's at the Harvard Kennedy School, you hit the road. And I think it's fair to say you you hit the road hard, right? <laughs> uh, what drew you to more than 20 countries, you know, Syria, Yemen, Sudan, Pakistan, the DRC, Colombia? I mean, those are those are, you know, the top list of hotspots. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, I in the book, I'm very candid about where I was personally when when I really hit that journey. So it was the summer of 2007 when I finally had 
an opportunity to join a radio program that allowed me to do that work. And it was also coming off a lot of personal trauma that summer, um, a relationship, a family death, a lot of stuff that really kind of uh, just really unmoored me. And I was I was sort of lost and in a lot of pain and trying to find a place to put that. So there was a little bit of death wish kind of thing, but a sense that I just needed to get as far away from what had been my life as possible. And so I joined this program based in D.C. doing long form international affairs radio sort of documentary kind of thing. And it allowed me to propose topics. And I generally pushed for the most extreme reporting opportunities possible because I, I, I felt, you know, I felt late to the game. Even though just, you know, career wise, I wasn't in a position on 9-11 to be deployed into Afghanistan. But there was, a, you know, a little bit of career envy and feeling of I have to go out and play catch up and go to these dangerous places and kind of check the boxes. So there, there was that aspect. But at the same time, you know, I, I was interested in doing really substantive, important journalism about peacekeeping in Darfur or the, the attempts to to make peace to keep in the Congo or these things. So I, you know, I, I believe I was doing important stories that weren't getting a lot of coverage because they're difficult to get to, but it was sort of satisfying that need for me to kind of establish myself and, and also kind of figure some things out along the way. Yeah. I mean, to that end, you, you admit in the book that you were quote, often naive, selfish, and a little bit arrogant as I strove to establish myself in a competitive business. So how would you describe your, your peer set at the time? Uh, you know, at that time, there were a lot of people that I just, I looked at as, as, you know, I guess you could say rock stars in the profession um, who did incredible work and were in very difficult places. I didn't know most of them personally in the early days. So I didn't have a sense really of their personality, their motivation, uh, whether they were good people or not, frankly, uh, whether also maybe driven by ego, adrenaline, any number of, you know, thrill seeking. And I think over time, as I got to, to know that community, it, it was a mix. I mean, everyone was sort of complicated in terms of why they were running around Fallujah or, you know, Hellmund or things like that. And, you know, many, yes, absolutely mission driven journalism, public service. But, you know, there's there's a spectrum. I sort of describe in the book that there are some that are, you know, very sort of sociopathic, narcissistic. I equate them to the character Dick Thornburg in the Die Hard movies, you know, that in your face journalist who doesn't care about the human suffering or anything. It's get the story, get me on camera, you know, it's sort of me, 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 get it first type of thing. And, and, and that's real. I mean, that character didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, there were a lot of people I met who were really kind of of activists, humanitarians wanting to save everyone in these places. And they were doing it through journalism, but some really kind of morphed back and forth between humanitarian advocates and, and journalists. So, you know, a wide range of spectrum, but I did find, you know, some truly incredible people and people like Anthony Shadid, who I did get to spend some time with um, before he passed. 
uh, Marie Colvin as well, uh, and lots of others who just, you know, incredible, talented, committed people um, who accept risk as part of the equation of telling these stories so the world knows and hopefully takes action uh, to, you know, minimize the harm, suffering, prevent the next problem. After a stint with that first media organization, America America Abroad Media, you moved over to NPR and served as an international correspondent producing award-winning coverage uh, from Libya to Iraq. And, and that eventually landed you in NPR's bureau in Kabul. What was the city and your beat like when you arrived in 2012? So 2012 was a really transitional period. I mean, sort of literally and figuratively, because it was after the the surge that had happened. So around you know late 2009 into 2010, the Obama administration surged in troops, diplomats, resources, and sort of an effort to really you know, as they would say, turn the corner kind of thing. Uh, and then that lasted really only about eight to 10 months and they started drawing down. And in the summer of 2012, the conditions were the United States was leaving at the end of 2014 unless the two countries signed a new agreement allowing for continued U.S. troop presence. So there was this expectation that that agreement was going to happen, but they had to plan for it not happening. So there was, it was this sort of ambiguous period for a while of, is the international community leaving? Is it not? A lot of effort trying to build up the Afghans and transition as much capability to them, but it was clearly not going that well. And there was no way the Afghan forces were going to be ready by the end of 2014. Um, but it was still, you know, the Kabul atmosphere in general was still reasonably loose. I mean, all the the really crazy sort of party era was was quieting down a little bit just because there was a bit of reduction in presence and and a little tightening of things. But, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, you know, there was still a feeling of, at least as a foreigner in Kabul, that you were relatively safe as you can be. It was a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, you weren't, as a non-military person, you weren't a target per se. Um, and that in early 2014, that changed and started to to become you know, civilians became targets and, uh, you know, very, very different circumstances. But in 2012, there was still this, you know, kind of sort of optimistic feeling. But, you know, I think there was it was starting to creep into people's minds that uh, with the drawdown, uh, the future was really uncertain there. We often hear about local journalists called fixers, and mm -hmm. you mention a number of them in your book. Paint us a picture for what how that relationship works. So fixers, that's the, the term. Usually they're local journalists who work with foreigners who, who come in and they do anything from, you know, just translation to helping you with the bureaucratic aspects of working in a place. Um, atmospherics, giving you story ideas, helping to set up interviews, giving you contacts. So like, for example, when I uh, went to Sudan, they're extremely bureaucratic, very American unfriendly, press unfriendly at that time in 2007. So I was able to connect through other journalists 
found a guy in Khartoum. So he was able to work from his side on getting some of the permissions I needed and the press approval and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, so you, you're working with that person ahead of time to get all the logistics, get their input on the story that you want to do. You discuss, you know, who, who should we talk to? Who do you know? Um, you also try to check who they've worked with and try to make sure that you don't do the exact same story as the journalist that they worked with the month before. Um, but, you know, people are, are just indispensable and some of them take incredible risk, uh, you know, sometimes working in places where Americans or foreigners aren't necessarily welcome, where press activity is is not well regarded. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I note is that for me, for about five years, I was DC based. I would drop into a place for a few weeks, do a story, and I'd leave. You know, Fixer stays there and stays in the situation. And I, you know, I asked a lot of them actually, because you do forge some pretty tight bonds with some of these people because you are in, you know, close quarters, sometimes days at a time in the car, a lot of time to talk, get to know each other. And, uh, you know, I'd ask a lot of them, like, you know, you speak multiple languages, you're educated. Why don't you head somewhere else where you can have a more comfortable living, raise your children in more safety? And a lot of them said, you know, I think about this all the time and I think about the future of my kids, but I, I want to stay here and this is service to my country. I'm trying to make this a better place and I'm going to stay as long as I can uh, to, to try to help. And, that, you know, something that, that really stuck with me in, in those conversations. But I, you know, I always say that the foreign reporting that consumers read, see, you know, hear out of these places doesn't happen with these, you know, unsung individuals who take great risk and uh, often suffer severe consequences. Yeah. We certainly heard a lot about them when, uh, when Cabo collapsed and which ones, you know, were able to get out and yeah. which ones weren't. Um, your tenure there lasted just over two years and it ended with the shuttering of NPR's bureau. You arrived solo in Afghanistan, but that's not how you left. So yeah. Tell us, tell us about Squeak the Cat, to whom uh, your book is dedicated. Yeah. So, um, so Squeak and I met um, actually uh, early in the time when I uh, moved to uh, to Afghanistan. So it was a beautiful fall afternoon. I'm sitting out on the patio of the, the bureau and this cat comes through the yard with two really scraggly looking kittens in tow and ran in the house to try to get some food and they disappeared. So didn't see him for a week or so. And then cat comes with one kitten. And they come through the yard. This time I, you know, grabbed a can of tuna fish, put it out on the patio. They came up, they ate. So that kind of happened every few days for a week or two. And then eventually the mother started swatting the kitten away from the food. And I kind of looked at this going, all right, this very small mud caked worm infested kitten is about to be stuck on its own. I guess I'm adopting a, an Afghan street kitten. And uh, so took her in. She lived with me the, the rest of my time. And, and um, you know, we established a, a, a 
particular bond and kept each other company. And uh, so, of course, you know, when I left, she was she was coming with me. So she won the uh, the Afghan cat lottery and has uh, had a very comfortable life in in the U.S. uh, here in D.C. And then she had a nice uh, year in Cape Cod um, where I I spent writing the book. Uh, She was little reluctant to leave and come back to DC, but, uh, you know, and well, who, who wants to leave Cape Cod if they don't have to. Right. Right. So you come back to DC with squeak, you worked several freelance gigs. You did a year at a cyber and it magazine, four years at the Pentagon after years in the most visceral of environments overseas, that must've been quite a shock. Coming back is, is is a difficult thing, and you know we see and hear this a lot with with veterans, right? And so a lot of attention around that about readjusting to quote normal life in the United States after combat tours, and how jarring and difficult that can be, and and people feeling just sort of very alien and disconnected. And turns out that that can happen to civilians who spend time in those places and you come back and it, I mean, it's a mix. I mean, there's certainly, I came back with a certain degree of, of PTSD. I mean, not, not acute. I wasn't, you know, having flashback nightmares, but it was, it was just churning and, you know, just this sense of feeling uncomfortable walking on the streets with people around me, you know, not being able to handle crowds and, you know, sudden loud noises, things like that. So, you know, you've got kind of that going on. And then, you know, in my case, after the, the bureau closed and I came back, you know, there, NPR didn't have an opening for me. So I, I got back to D.C. and didn't really have anything to keep my mind occupied right away. And so that kind of allowed years of accumulated experiences and seeing and hearing and smelling things around the world just kind of lands in front of you. And you realize, you know, I've been a step ahead of this while I was doing the job. Now, what what do I do? How do I, I process this? And, um, you know, it's something that it's still an, an ongoing thing. But part of it was, as, as you pointed out, kind of slowing down, being in office jobs um, is really hard to, to do. And after a few years at the inspector general's office of being, you know, literally in a secure building and not being out in the field, not doing those things that, you know, kind of make me feel alive uh, and between COVID and between just taking more friendly fire doing interagency government work than than I ever saw downrange. Uh, I just you know, I hit the end of my rope and I was like, I, I got to get out of this. And you know, ultimately writing the book was kind of the the first step of recovery and really trying to process this whole experience and figure out, you know, what to do with it, um, both in terms of myself and then looking at my peers in that universe and realizing, you know, there are lots of people out there who are not getting the help. They, like I did, didn't understand the full complexity of what they were getting into as a war correspondent. Um, You know, I think it's easy to sort of look at it at a certain superficial level of what it is, but on a day-to-day level, you're around danger, death, human suffering. uh, And, 
you know, I had no training awareness, anything to process that stuff going into it or along the journey or when I got back. And so that's sort of at this point with, you know, with the book and what I'm trying to do now is, is really build that conversation and say, Hey, you know, it's not just veterans who come home and have things to deal with. You know, we're sending thousands and thousands of civilians, aid workers, journalists, diplomats into these places. And we're not, we're not providing the, the oversight, the care, the, the help that's needed. You talk a lot in the book about mental health and your own challenges and struggles and frankly being pretty close to the edge on a number of occasions. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned a couple of uh, organizations that you're involved with, uh, the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride mm -hmm. and Movember. So mm -hmm. what are they and how do they fit in? Yeah. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because um, so Movember is an international nonprofit that focuses on men's health. And they started actually with a focus on prostate cancer. Uh, since that's, you know, one of the, the, the leading killers of, of men. And I got involved with that. I found out kind of by accident in around 2017, 2018, when I you know, was buying a motorcycle at that time. And uh, someone mentioned this distinguished gentleman's ride. And I looked it up and it's an annual fundraiser for Movember. And so around the world, hundreds of cities, motorcycle riders gather, they dress in tweed and all sorts of fancy outfits and ride classic motorcycles and raise money for Movember. And so I actually have a, a history of prostate cancer in my family. So something I was very aware of and keeping an eye on myself. So I got into Movember and DGR because of the prostate cancer angle. And then they started a mental health focus because one of the other leading killers of men and a growing epidemic is suicide. And so they started uh, really focusing heavily on men's mental health, encouraging people to, to get into group programs, activities, just all sorts of things around men's mental health, normalizing, talking about mental health, since, you know, we're notoriously terrible at, at discussing feelings and things like that. So um, as I was getting deeper into doing things with Movember, I was sinking lower and lower and you know, Movember, putting energy into that was something that kind of helped me um, get through some of my my periods. And since then, I've done, uh, you know, a video story with them talking about my story, encouraging other people, um, again, to, to open up, to seek help, to recognize that, you know, it isn't a hit to your masculinity to say, I've been through some tough stuff and I, I can't figure this out on my own. Um, so that's, in, you know, really moving in parallel with, with, you know, trying to focus on mental health in, in journalism and civilian work and hostile environments and Movember and really tying this all together as much as I can to, and, you know, honestly, this is something that I talked to people a year and a half ago as I was writing the book and talking about this. And people said, look, just getting the book out, getting your story out is going to be critical because people need to, you know, they need to see sort of the first movers start talking about this to kind of take the risk, open up and start laying the groundwork for other people to kind of feel comfortable to say, hey, you know what? 
Yeah, I just came back from a, a, you know, a year in the State Department in whatever country, and it is really messing with me. Um, So, you know, that's absolutely a huge, huge issue. Um, In the couple of minutes that remain, I want to sort of talk about where we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, These days, you're the managing editor for National Defense Magazine. It's the house publication for the National Defense Industrial Association. Trade media is a far cry from from war correspondents, even though they both relate to defense. So what's your approach to the to the beat in this role, given your background? Yeah. So because of the fact that I spent a lot of time downrange and saw, you know, I sort of saw the defense industry in practice and uh, saw evolutions of, of vehicles and weapons and things like that. You know, the time that I was downrange, I saw, you know, the, the MRAP, the, you know, the big armored vehicles that, that then, you know, Ash Carter was really championing getting these things out because the Humvees were being blown up by IEDs. And so, you know, I saw a lot of the iteration, the, innovation and adapting new technology to deal with threats on the ground. And so having seen that definitely informs me when I'm now talking to people at the Pentagon or in defense companies or in some of these innovation organizations about trying to rapidly develop technology and so being able to, to kind of connect the dots between the threats and the application and sort of what's going on back here, I think, is a big part of it. And so I, you know, within the trade space, I really do try to focus a little sort of higher level, bring a little bit more policy and and tie these things together. And, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues might focus more on some of the specific sort of technical aspects. Um, but also, again, I'm, just because I'm a, a bit of a policy wonk, I'd like looking at some of the challenges of, you know, reforming defense acquisition and the fact that, you know, technology constantly innovates, grows, um, adapts much faster than the Defense Department and the military. And you have people downrange who could really use a piece of technology that exists in the commercial world. And so trying to figure out how policies and acquisition vehicles can be more efficient so that, you know, the the person downrange has everything they need. Because that, you know, it's the other thing that you see with I saw a lot of soldiers sticking things together and improvising things because the things that they were given officially procured by, you know, the army or defense department weren't quite meeting the needs when they really got into use. And so again, seeing that and reporting on sort of the importance of the end user feedback and, you know, you want, as they say, you don't want American service members ever in a fair fight, right? You want them to have the best equipment, the best training. So, you know, the work I do now and the work of the trade publications, which I think, you know, highly undervalued because often, you know, you'll see a story in the New York Times or Washington Post about some, you know, acquisitions program or a weapons like, oh, the trade publications were reporting on that three months ago. Totally. They sort of, you know, they pulled up the story that then filtered its way up. So uh, I think, you know, really underappreciated um, segment of the journalism world that is, you know, 
really helping educate, inform, and drive things that hopefully save, you know, war fighters downrange. Two last quick questions. What's your take on coverage of Ukraine? Uh, I think, you know, generally good. I think the one thing that, that has bothered me a little bit because I've worked in government and have been on the other side of the, the classified wall, I think sometimes there's too much of a push to reveal information about where's the counteroffensive going and what systems and things like that. Like, you know, some of that stuff should be <laughs> kept a little quieter. And I think um, media and everyone kind of let expectations about the counteroffensive get out of hand. And so when it's not meeting expectations and it turns into a bad news story. And I think anyone who really understood the circumstances on the ground there would have said the counteroffensive is not likely to be you know, revolutionary. Um, So I think that, you know, I wish people had been a little bit more kind of tuned in and said, well, hey, wait a second, let's not expect this thing to kick the Russians out in a month. Last question. If your phone ever rang again, would you take it or has Squeak settled the matter once and for all? I, I would definitely take the call. Um, I, and I've said, you know, I, I don't, really want to do frontline work again. Um, but I would happily deploy to Ukraine and do behind the front lines work because that's, that's where the really important journalism happens. Uh, the frontline stuff is, you know, it's, it's sizzle. It's, it's, but it's two dimensional. The stories are the people behind the scenes, really helping people survive, helping people cope, rebuild, support the effort. Uh, that's the stuff that that I just think needs the most coverage. Sean, thank you so much for your time. I don't really appreciate it. Sean Carberry is managing editor of National Defense Magazine and the author of the new book, Passport Stamps, available through Amazon and elsewhere. You can see his work at nationaldefensemagazine.org and follow him on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Adam Cano. Thanks again for listening. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.